Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with David B. Cantor, MD, PhD, about the article, Ultrasound Guidance and Other Determinants of Successful Peripheral Artery Catheterization in Critically Ill Children, published in the December 2016 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Cantor is an assistant in critical care in the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative, and Pain Medicine in the Division of Critical Care Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and the Department of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, David. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, Margaret. I really appreciate this opportunity. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? No, I don't. Okay. So give us some background on what is known about the use of ultrasound for vascular access procedures. Sure. So, you know, this is an um, an emerging sort of field over the past many years. And, you know, I think basically we're we're at the point now where there's, you know, enough evidence to to say that the use of ultrasound for placement of uh, central venous catheters is the standard of care in both adult and pediatric critical care medicine and, you know, sort of other fields that, that utilize invasive central lines. For the specific question in this paper, which is peripheral artery catheterization, the data in pediatrics, at least, was a little bit less clear. So I think there are several studies out looking at adults, and all of them uniformly concluded that the use of ultrasound, whether it was in experienced hands or in trainees' hands, was sort of a superior method for placing peripheral artery catheterizations. In pediatrics, though, it was a little bit conflicted in the sense that there was a few studies that that pointed towards ultrasound being beneficial over sort of standard landmark or palpation-based methods. But there was the largest study actually showed that there was no benefit to the use of ultrasound, either in terms of time to successful procedure or the number of attempts that was sort of needed to ultimately sort of, you know, get the line. So, you know, I think overall the, the sort of data pointed in the direction of that ultrasound was probably beneficial for peripheral artery procedures, but again, a little bit of conflict there. And then the other sort of piece of it is that what really hasn't been done either in adult populations or pediatric populations is to ask the question, are there subsets of patients in which uh, the use of ultrasound is particularly beneficial? So you could sort of imagine a scenario where, um, you know, maybe in, in an otherwise healthy child who is going for an elective procedure for one reason or another needed a artery, a peripheral artery catheter, place that, you know, perhaps in the, in the hands of an experienced uh, anesthetist that, you know, ultrasound would not be particularly beneficial over use of the palpation method. Um, similarly, you could imagine a scenario where, um, you know, a critically ill child who is um, hypotensive, um, you know, in the ICU, whose pulse is particularly difficult to palpate, uh, you can imagine in that scenario that perhaps the use of ultrasound, you know, might be beneficial for getting that line in a, in a critical situation where invasive blood pressure monitoring is, is sort of essential to the ongoing management of the patient. So, th- so those are the sorts of, you know, those are the sorts of questions that we were interested in investigating in this particular paper. So how did you go about trying to answer that question? So basically, we, we actually, this, this started as a bit of a uh, quality improvement project, to be totally honest with you. We were, you know, several years ago, we were sort of evaluating the use of, of ultrasound and kind of what role did it play in our particular ICU. And so basically, we, we simply started observing fellows around the time that we implemented a, a very rudimentary sort of a didactic course in, in the use of ultrasound for venous access mainly, but also for, for arterial access. And, you know, I do want to sort of emphasize that it, it essentially was a very rudimentary course. And, you know, more or less the, the fellows, I think what the course did more than anything was sort of introduce the, the possibility that ultrasound could also be used for arterial access in addition to the more standard use in, in central venous placement. 
And anyway, sort of after we sort of implemented that intervention, I guess you could call it, we just basically started observing fellows when they placed peripheral artery catheters and measuring some standard outcome measures, you know, time to successful blood return, you know, number of attempts, complications, failed procedures, first attempt success rate, you know, recording those outcome measures in a, you know, sort of prospective way. We started recording some aspects about the fellows themselves. How many procedures had they recorded prior to this particular observed procedure? How far along in their training were they? And then, you know, we were, as I mentioned, as I alluded to earlier, we were very interested in patient characteristics. So various anthropometric characteristics of the patient, BMI, fluid overload, what was their blood pressure at the time of the procedure? You know, kind of the usual things that you could imagine would interfere with the successful procedure. And then we simply recorded that data over the next six years, and eventually were able to sort of observe over 200 procedures. You know, it's important to emphasize that this was not a randomized procedure. We didn't randomize fellows to do one procedure or the other, which obviously has its drawbacks in the sense that there's confounding that we potentially could not account for. Though it does sort of play to the strengths of the operator in the sense that each operator presumably chose the procedure with which they were most comfortable And this kind of avoids one pitfall, I think, of the other studies, which is maybe artificially handicapping. If you randomize a a person who is good at ultrasound to using the palpation method, you're sort of artificially handicapping them. And similarly, if you take a person or operator who's comfortable with the palpation method and randomize them to ultrasound, you could be potentially handicapping them. So, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses to, to both approaches, but we opted for just sort of a prospective observation trial. Tell us what you found. Yeah, so so we we found really convincing data, which is which is why we sort of converted this from you know essentially what was a quality improvement initiative into a, a research publication because we felt that it was you know worth reporting and worth sort of other people kind of seeing what we found. So so first of all, just in terms of the the most basic aspects of the of the project, we found that basically in all the outcome measures that we looked at, the uh, ultrasound performed better than the palpation method. And, you know, one thing that I didn't emphasize in, the, in discussing the, the project design was that this is really focused on our fellows who are relatively inexperienced with sort of use of ultrasound and, and also with vascular access procedures. I mean, these are trainees who are essentially learning how to do these procedures, which contrasts with previous studies, which are more focused on attending level providers and or sort of uh, anesthetists, trainee anesthetists with, with uh, sort of substantial uh, sort of experience in, in sort of anesthesia and line placement. Sort of having said that, though, we found that in terms of time to placement, a number of attempts, first attempt success rate, that ultrasound was superior to the palpation method for all of those outcome measures. We also found that ultrasound was superior to the palpation method in terms of a reduced number of complications, and by that I specifically mean hematomas, which was the only complication where we had sufficient numbers to actually do a, an analysis. And also, ultrasound was superior in terms of uh, avoiding failed procedures. So, so in other words, the palpation method was uh, more likely to be associated with failed procedures than was the, the ultrasound method. Were these radial artery catheterizations? Yeah, so they, they were all radial artery catheterization. So we, we do have a sort of a, a small handful of times where we were, we were able to record peripheral artery catheters placed in other locations, but uh, the, the ends weren't high enough to sort of conduct an analysis on those sites. Has there been an increase in the use of ultrasound over time at your institution? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, you know, again, I think that this is, you know, we did, as I said, we did institute a quote-unquote intervention in the sense that we, you know, had this rudimentary training for our fellows. But again, I think it was more the idea of sort of introducing them to the possibility that ultrasound could be used for 
arterial catheterization in, you know, in the same way that's used for vascular, uh, sorry, for venous access. And so I think, I think once that idea took hold, it sort of very organically grew amongst the group of, of fellows. And so now we estimate that roughly half of the arterial access procedures that are done in our unit are done with ultrasound guidance. And this is compared to, you know, essentially zero, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to seven years ago. So are we training a generation of fellows who are not so good at the traditional palpation technique? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think this is, a, this is a really good question. And, you know, to be, to be totally straightforward, I, I honestly don't really know the answer. We, we tried to sort of address that question in the paper by sort of doing some comparisons with, uh, so amongst our observations, amongst our fellows that we observed, we, we seem to have a group of fellows who only use the palpation method and we also seem to have a group of fellows who could sort of use either the ultrasound method or the palpation method. And so to begin to address your question, we basically compared those fellows who could do both procedures, either palpation or ultrasound. So we we looked at the subset of procedures that they did using palpation, and then we compared that to fellows who we only had a record of them ever using palpation. Presumably that was by far the, the, the method that they felt most comfortable with. And what we found is basically no difference in terms of their, their ability to, in, in terms of sort of the outcome measures of either time to success or number of attempts to success. And again, that's definitely not a you know, definitive statement on the subject, but what I think the way that we sort of interpreted it is that there's a, a sort of core set of skills that's involved in placing an arterial line, being facile with the manipulation of needles, you know, being able to set yourself up comfortably and ha- have a, you know, a sense of when to advance the needle or when you've got blood return, you know, sort of these mm-hmm. basic set of skills that are common to both, both procedures. And kind of the way that we interpret it is that if you acquire sort of expertise or some facility with the use of ultrasound, that there's a set of skills that is then transferable to the landmark method. You know, again, I do want to emphasize that we're not, I'm not stating that this is the definitive evidence on the matter. And in fact, there are some other publications that would suggest that training an ultrasound method is not transferable to other vascular access procedures. And I'm, I'm referring actually to a study that specifically looked at central venous lines. So I, I do think that it's a question for discussion. Is, is there a question for discussion and honestly further investigation? Is there a risk that we are, as you said, training fellows who will be incapable of placing arterial lines by the, the palpation method? I, I, you know, I think that that needs to be weighed against the findings in this study and other studies that show that ultrasound is simply superior. And so, you, you know, re- reduced number of complications, quicker time to getting the procedure, which, you know, you, you, we could all imagine could translate into, you know, benefits in terms of patient care. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. we've all taken care of the patient who's hypotensive, very ill, who were struggling to get an A-line to draw labs, to sort of have some sense of ongoing blood pressure management. You know, and if, and if ultrasound could theoretically or potentially play a role in that, that that's, a, that's a potential win or a potential benefit rather for the, for the provider and also for, obviously for the patient as well. You made reference to looking at some of the patient characteristics for which ultrasound is superior. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so this was, uh, for me anyway, this was probably the most interesting aspect of the study because it, it was definitely, I mean, this I feel was kind of the, the most novel contribution to this was really sort of dissecting what the, you know, what are the patient characteristics that lend themselves most to the use of ultrasound. And I guess I would just start out by saying that, you know, the, the normal patients, the, the normal sort of older patients, and by that I mean patients who have normal blood pressures, you know, patients who are older than 10 years old, patients who are neither have, you know, extremes of BMI, who are essentially, you know, close to the mean for BMI, patients who are not fluid overloaded, 
For those patients, we, we really did not find a huge difference between the use of ultrasound and, and the use of the palpation method. That's probably not, you know, that's probably not all that surprising. But where ultrasound really made a difference was particularly for patients who uh, were hypotensive, so patients that had Z-scores of, of less than one uh, from sort of, uh, you know, sort of you know, normal systolic blood pressure, patients who are, who are fluid overloaded, patients who had fluid overload percents of greater than 5%, you know, substantially benefited, you know, I use that word uh, sort of not... Uh, you know, I, I guess what, I, what I'd like to say is that patients who are greater than 5% fluid overloaded had placement of arterial lines that was much quicker or significantly quicker uh, when ultrasound was used compared to the landmark-based method. And similarly, patients with, with, who are at the extremes of BMI, so these were patients who are either you know, very low uh, BMI or very high BMIs also had arterial lines that were placed uh, more easily with ultrasound than with the palpation method. One other thing that we found, again, we looked at sort of operator characteristics, and we found that basically, you know, use of ultrasound sort of really flattens the training curve for trainees. So, in other words, first-year fellows who used ultrasound were essentially at, as good at placing arterial lines as third-year fellows who were using the palpation method. Now, by comparison, third-year fellows who used the palpation method were, you know, significantly better than first-year fellows using the palpation method. So, you know, the use of ultrasound really sort of flattens that learning curve. And again, in a critical scenario where you're dependent on, you know, getting an arterial line for managing patients, placing that ultrasound probe in a first-year fellow's hand, essentially, you now have at your, you know, treating this patient, a, a very capable provider who's going to, you know, get that, that line with, with greater ease and facility. So do you train all of your fellows now in ultrasound, and do you consider that sort of the standard of care for peripheral artery catheterization? I don't think we're quite at that point yet. I mean, we're, we're, we're basically, you know, we're sort of at the point where we, we do introduce, we still do introduce our fellows to the idea that peripheral artery, that, that use of ultrasound for peripheral artery catheterization is, is beneficial in terms of, you know, basically making their job easier to do is, is kind of how we present it. But, you know, we certainly don't mandate or expect that, that all arterial lines will be placed by ultrasound. I mean, I think at this point, the way that we are thinking about it is more that, you know, this technology will help you do your job and potentially help with managing sick patients. But, you know, again, to, again, to sort of be frank, where we're at as a division is that we're sort of asking the same questions. Are we, if we train our fellows exclusively in the use of ultrasound, are we sacrificing palpation-based skills and landmark-based skills? And to be honest, we don't really have an answer to that question. And so at this point, we're not, you know, maybe speaking for my division, um, I don't think we're, we're really at the point where we say that peripheral artery lines should or ought to be placed with ultrasound. And one wonders down the road, ultrasound is becoming so ubiquitous. Does it matter if they don't learn the palpation technique? Yeah, you know, to be candid, that, that's my own personal opinion is that, you know, use of ultrasound, you know, even, uh, you know, even in resource limited settings and in international settings, it's really not uncommon to find ultrasound. And, you know, I think as this technology becomes more and more ubiquitous and sort of infiltrates more and more into the sort of, it really, all aspects of patient care, and I think your point is a really good one. Are we, you know, at that point where access to ultrasound is as easy as access to a stethoscope, is it really worth training fellows in a, in a what essentially might be an antiquated approach or technique? What do you think are the important components of implementing an ultrasound training program? Yeah, you know, this, is a, this is a really good question. I think this is kind of an emerging area um, in ultrasound. I mean, I think that, you know, now there's enough sort of evidence that, that ultrasound is helpful in many different domains of, of medicine. And I think now really the question is, 
uh, how do you train people? And, and especially, you know, I think one aspect of that question is for people who are already in training, you know, I think the implementation is a little bit more straightforward. So, you know, whether it's in medical school or residency or fellowship, I mean, I think it's a little bit more straightforward to begin to implement curriculums and say that, you know, when, when this person graduates from residency or fellowship, they have received training in the use of ultrasound for X, Y, and Z. It's a little bit different for the group of people who have already finished their training and are, you know, out in practice. How do you train that sort of large group of, of individuals? And, you know, just to sort of recognize a, a problem, an emerging problem is that there really is a growing rift between, you know, sort of younger generation of providers who, who feel um, much more comfortable with the use of ultrasound and older providers who you know, simply don't have the skills to, you know, utilize this technology. And so one approach that we're thinking about pursuing here in Boston, and I know that, that many other um, sort of pediatric critical care groups are advocating and pursuing, including the Society of Critical Care Medicine, is coming up with a framework for getting people trained. In other words, what are the requirements for didactic learning? Um, what are the requirements for hands-on scanning? What are the requirements for competency assessment? How does a hospital cred credential providers how do you do um, sort of quality control in terms of reviewing the images of people who are acquiring these images? And how do you implement sort of ongoing maintenance of credentialing? You know, these are the, these are the components of sort of responsible implementation of, of an ultrasound program. And, you know, certainly an approach advocated by groups such as the Society of Critical Care Medicine. So, you know, I, I think one message that I, I don't want people to take away from this talk is that, okay, an, an application, ultrasound has been proven beneficial for a particular application, therefore everybody can just sort of automatically go out and start implementing that use of ultrasound. You know, I think that the, the real message is that as this sort of accumulating, as, as evidence accumulates that ultrasound can be useful and beneficial, um, I think what that should prompt is a growing pressure for institutions to implement a responsible ultrasound training program so that their providers can, you know, responsibly use ultrasound for those applications where it's been proven beneficial and patients, quite honestly, can start benefiting from that technology. Well, speaking as one of those folks who trained in the pre-ultrasound days and who has done vascular access for, oh, I don't know, 100 years uh, mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. ultrasound, I second your comments about, you know, those more experienced learning ultrasound. I mean, I think that's it's pretty easy to train the new trainees who don't know any difference, mm -hmm. but going back and catching up some of us old docs is a different kind of challenge. Yeah, and I, I do think that that's you know that that's sort of the I think the the emerging area where work needs to be done in terms of you know figuring out how, you know we've we've got this technology it seems to be promising there's growing evidence that of a number of different applications now how do we you know how do we get this technology sort of infused into the in, into the ICUs around the country how do we responsibly implement these training programs and it's definitely labor intensive and it's definitely it's a challenge yeah. but hopefully as the, as the evidence sort of continues to emerge that ultrasound actually helps patients and I think that. that data is hopefully on the horizon that, you know, there'll, there'll be growing calls or pressure or whatever to sort of do that. How do you see the use of ultrasound expanding in pediatric critical care? That's a good question. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a number of different directions. I mean, I think that there's some really exciting work in, in uh, many different domains. You know, one, one use of ultrasound that people are, have been excited about is use of ultrasound to as a proxy for measuring intracranial pressure, which sounds a little bit uh, maybe bizarre, but basically you can ultrasound a patient's eye and measure their optic nerve sheath diameter. And because the optic nerve sheath is sort of continuous with the membrane surrounding the brain, any increase in pressure um, in the intracranial vault is transmitted to the optic nerve, and you basically see a commensurate widening of the optic nerve sheath. So this is something that people have been working on. You know, use of ultrasound to measure 
diaphragm thickness and sort of ask, do, do patients who are long-term ventilated patients have changes in the diameter of their diaphragm that might predict um, extubation readiness is an area of uh, emerging use of ultrasound. Measuring muscle thickness as a proxy for nutritional status. Some papers have been coming out recently that have, have sort of looked at that, and that's certainly an interesting application. You know, just sort of basic diagnostic uses of ultrasound to diagnose pneumothorax and pleural effusions, pericardial effusions, which are, again, require the appropriate training, but are, in the grand scheme of things, relatively straightforward measurements that can be performed by, you know, reasonably novice users. And I think one of the areas is particularly in critical care that, that's probably most interesting to me is sort of the use of ultrasound for, for evaluation of cardiac function. Mm -hmm. And also to, to ask the question, can we assess a patient's preload recruitable cardiac output before we give them a volume bolus? As you're aware, there's sort of growing sort of thought that over-resuscitating patients with volume is, you know, problematic. Yes. And certainly, you know, you've done work in this, in this area. You know, how do you find those patients who have low cardiac output in sepsis and ask, when I give this patient a volume bolus, am I going to help them or hurt them? And, you know, ultrasound, because I think one of the very exciting and interesting applications for ultrasound is to ask, um, is to predict very accurately which patients are going to have an improvement in their blood pressure when we give them a volume bolus compared to which patients are going to do worse with a volume bolus. And what they really need is titrating pressors. And, you know, there's some, there's a, have been a few papers recently who have begun to sort of get at that issue. And, and the, I think the evidence is, you know, very interesting and very promising that, that ultrasound may really play a, a key role in sort of the early resuscitations of patients with undifferentiated hypotension, you know, this sort of shock patients who come in very ill. Well, certainly it's an, an exciting field of exploration with a lot of new potential applications and the the benefit of being able to avoid radiation to children for some of these applications is certainly a compelling argument. I think your point about the importance of good training is really going to be critical to driving the appropriate use of ultrasound as we move forward. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's the you know, one of the phenomenon that I, one, one thing that I found in ultrasound is that uh, it's very exciting. You know, it's, I think it's very exciting for people to use a device for, for diagnostic purposes for the first time. And it is, it's thrilling. It really is thrilling to sort of use ultrasound and, and have it be part of your approach to patients. But I think, you know, again, one of the messages is that, you know, it is a, a technology that requires a lot of training. And, you know, just because you're able to see a pleural effusion on one patient very clearly and very obviously doesn't mean that on the next patient, things might be really unclear and you're not not sure what you're looking at. Similarly, you might look at one patient and see you know, low cardiac output that's just so obvious and you know exactly how to treat this patient from that point going forward. But another patient, you know, it may not be so clear. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what you really need is that the sort of experience and the training and the, you know, the hours devoted to looking at images before we can say that, you know, people can responsibly use this technology. And more to the point, it's not just a question of responsible implementation. It really is how do we get the most out of the technology? And, and really the way to do that is to make sure that the people who are using it, you know, know what they're doing, essentially. Absolutely. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's uh, I, I really do appreciate this opportunity. It's been great. It's, it's nice to, I think sometimes you, you kind of work away and don't really <laughs> recognize that people actually read your work. So this, is, this has been very gratifying. So uh, it's been great. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, thank you very much for talking with us, David. Okay, Margaret. Have a great you day. Too. We have been talking with Dr. David B. Cantor from Boston Children's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, about the article, Ultrasound Guidance and Other Determinants of Successful Peripheral Artery Catheterization in Critically Ill Children, published in the December 2016 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast.
please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.